oh God. We put our hands together because heaven is the capital of music in this universe. You are the great fount of melody, source of music. And so our hearts respond as you have created us to. We respond with gratitude for that gift. Father, we live in a world where the music is discordant. The music is somber. The music tentative regarding the journey of this planet. Give us your heart as we ponder for a few more moments this world, your heart, and ours. We humbly pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. You ever feel like Elijah? I alone am left. Do you ever feel like you're the last one standing? I'm the last one you have, God, in this dormitory room. I'm it. I'm the last one in this classroom. I alone am left in this department. I alone am left in this factory. I alone am left in this office. I'm the only one left in this marriage. I'm telling you what, I'm the last of the Mohegans in this family. I'm the only one left in this neighborhood. I'm the only one left in this nation. I'm the only one left in this denomination. You ever feel like Elijah? I alone am left. Everybody else has deserted you. I'm the last to stand for you. Everybody's abandoned the truth but me. Everybody's sacrificed the standards but me. Everybody's compromised morality but me. I alone am left. You ever feel like Elijah? If you do, I mean, come on, let's be honest. We all do. This blue funk of self-pity... We've all played that tune, haven't we? Haven't we? Yeah, we have. But maybe it's good news. Little guy like me, little, little guy like you, and a great prophet like Elijah. Although I've got to tell you, he's not, very, he's not feeling very great when these words were spoken. For 43 days and 43 nights, he has been on the lamb. He has been on the run just like our little elementary school primers. You remember those little books, those little reading books they gave to us when we were in school? How did those books go? Look, look, look. See Elijah run. 
run, Elijah, run, run, run. Only they didn't teach us to read it with expression, did they? Run. And so he ran. He ran because of a woman. Wouldn't you know it? That old adage is true. Hell hath no fury like a spurned and jealous woman. And when Jezebel in that dark and rain-drenched night learned that her precious little prophets of Baal and Asherah had all been single-handedly slaughtered by the camel-haired, leather-belted prophet of Tishba. She cursed the God of Israel. So help me, God, if I do not take your life, Elijah, and make you just like the prophets you butchered by this time tomorrow, or my name isn't Jezebel. And that fatigued prophet lifts his dripping face into the torrential night and hears the death messenger. It's over. The man of Carmel snapped. The prophet of God crumbled. The great reformer of Israel ran and ran and ran. You can't believe it. God didn't tell him to. He ran because he broke. I want you to read those words again. This is one fascinating narrative. Okay, open your Bible up. Go to, go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. You didn't bring a Bible. Pull that pew Bible out. This, this narrative, you've got to track this one. There's a word in here for you. There's a word in here for me. We'll get it. We'll listen long enough here before we hurry out of this place to get the word from God. 1 Kings chapter 19. You didn't bring a Bible, pew Bible. What's the page number in the pew Bible? It will be page 249. 249. I'm in the New King James Version, which is the pew Bible. You bring your own Bible, great. Doesn't matter the translation to me. Let's read along together. 1 Kings chapter 19. Pick it up in verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. But the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. The whining whimper of self-pity. Who here hasn't succumbed to it? Don't look at me like you don't know the meaning of self-pity. Come on. I've been there more times than I care to admit. I'll be out driving alone, having a little soliloquy with myself. Maybe running a long, a long run where I get time to think long stretches of highway. And I don't know what it is. I get fall into this dark negative kind of poor me thinking. And I get to rehearsing how everything is going against me right now. I'm the only one, the only one putting out this kind of effort. The only one that cares at all about how this turns out. And you know what? I keep playing that record. Or for you it would be, I keep playing that CD. And it goes around and around and around. And before I know it, I'm telling you the truth, before I know it, sometimes I'm crying. I'm so mad. 
poor me, pitiful little me. You ever succumb like Elijah to to self-pity? Come on, am I the only weirdo here? You're looking at me like... Sometimes I come to Karen and I unload. She's feeling happy that day. She listen. <laughs> if she's not, you know, if, if she thinks she's had enough of this, you know what she does? Where's the camera? Look at these two fingers. You know what she does? She goes like this. I said, what's that? This is the world's smallest violin playing My Heart Bleeds for You. I get no respect. <laughs> ah, the poor me, poor pitiful little me. I tell you what, when my mind finally clears, I realize I've just been sucked again into the devil's trap of self-pity. Every time it's his business. This Scottish writer, profound analysis of self-pity. I'm going to share it with you. Oswald Chambers in his book, wonderful book, My Utmost for His Highest, no sin is worse than the sin of self-pity. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity. That's so, that's so punchy, I wish you'd write it down right now. Pull out your study guide. There's a study guide in your worship bulletin today. Pull it out and let's get that sentence down. You didn't get a study guide? Hold your hand up. We've got some great ushers here and they are fast too. Watch this. They'll be at your side in a split second. Hold your hand up. Up in the balcony, there they are. Glad to have you. Those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you as well. You can get the same study guide while they're handing them out right here. You go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. Put our website on the screen. You see it there? www.pmchurch.tv. This is a new little four-part mini-series called Earthquake, God's Seismic Love for Our Broken Planet. It's a little four-parter. Thanks to Japan and Christchurch, New Zealand and Chile and Haiti just a year ago, Everybody's thinking earthquake now and tsunami, and so we're kind of capitalizing on that moment, and we're examining some of the great earthquakes in Scripture. We're going to get to an earthquake today. This is part two. Those of you watching, you're looking for part two, not part one. Part one's there on the uh, website for you, videocast, podcast. You can get it later. But you want the study guide. Where it says study guide, click on there. You'll have the same study guide. And I want to get this Oswald Chambers. This is a profound, for me, provocative analysis of self-pity. Take a look at this. You see it there? We'll put it on the screen for you. Fill it in. Oswald Chambers. No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity. Isn't that something? No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity. Keep reading. Why? Because it obliterates God and puts self-interest on the throne. Oh, boy, isn't that true. It opens our mouths to spit out murmurings and our lives become craving spiritual sponges. What our mouths say, our our lives absorb. There's nothing lovely or generous about them. Poor me. I alone am left. Now, Elijah is very careful in his retort to God. Hey, yo, what are you doing here? Well, I want to tell you something, God. It's all about you, your covenant, your altar, your prophets. He uses you, 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 but it all... Listen, don't be fooled by the you, 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 because in Elijah's heart and mind, do you know what the prevailing pronoun is? Me, me, me. I, poor me. I alone am loyal and left for you. Poor me. How did Chambers put it? Self-pity obliterates God and puts self-interest on the throne. Hey, self-pity is no respecter of persons, is it? It doesn't care who you are. 
You get it. Look at this. A, a century ago, the writer is writing a personal letter. A personal letter. A century ago. And to this person comes this, this little portion of the letter. I'll put it on the screen for you. It's in your study guide. You have to fill it in. Your self-pity, she writes. Your self-pity is an injury to you. You sympathize with yourself. Boy, we're all good at that, aren't we? You sympathize with yourself. You feel that you are not esteemed as you should be. Do you know what? Do you know how long I've been a mother with this little brood? Do you know how long I've been married to him? Do you know? Do you, do you think I get any, any thanks from the children? Any thanks at all? No, nobody cares. I slave. I work another job, come home, and I got a whole new portfolio of work to attack. Nobody understands. You know what, mother? You are absolutely right. Nobody understands. Nobody knows what you do. God bless our mothers and our wives. Keep reading here. Your self-pity is an injury to you. You sympathize with yourself. You feel that you are not esteemed as you should be. That your work is altogether too hard and your best efforts are, un- are unappreciated. You know what? Wouldn't you know it? Faculty, faculty teacher award of the year. Do you know how many years I've been teaching here? Do you think I've gotten an award? Huh? I get no recognition around here. I put in, I put in more work than he does. I've written more papers. I've been published further. Think anybody recognizes it around here? Not on your life. Self-pity. You might be able to smell it. These feelings, the quotation goes on, these feelings are the result of a spiritual disease, this spiritual malaria. That's pretty strong. Self-pity is a spiritual disease. It's malaria of the soul. I alone am left, I'm telling you. Wow. Is there any cure? Is there a cure for self-pity? Before we get to the earthquake, uh, one more line from that punchy little book, Prophets and Kings. Put it on the screen for you. You'll have to fill this one in as well. Listen to this. Look at this on the screen. Moses failed just on the borders of the promised land. So with Elijah. Hit the pause button right there because as I'm looking at this quotation this week, meditating on it, it suddenly hits me. Hey, wait a minute. Two men, two great, some of the great, two of the greatest men who've ever lived in human history, they both melt down at the end of their lives. They fall apart, both of them. And did you know this? Both of those men were sent by Almighty God to stand beside Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration to tell him, don't quit like we did. You can't melt down now, Messiah. Savior, you can't, you can't fail. Both failures were sent to Jesus. Moses, Elijah. Good news that you can get to heaven after being a massive meltdown failure on this planet. Isn't it good news? Wow, what a God. And then he sends you to help somebody else. My, oh my. I'll read that again. Moses failed just on the borders of the promised land. So with Elijah, he who had maintained his trust in Jehovah during the years of drought and famine, he who had stood undaunted before Ahab, he who throughout that trying day on Mount Carmel had stood before the whole nation of Israel, the sole witness to the true God, in a moment of weariness, allowed the fear of death to overcome his faith in God. And so it is today. Hey, listen, sis, you can melt down. Don't you think that you can't melt down? You can melt down, sir. 
It can happen to you. It can happen to all of us. One flash of self-pity, nurtured, coddled. And oh, how quick I have found it goes into the heart. How quick it begins to eat at the soul. And so it is today. Despondency may shake the most heroic faith and weaken the most steadfast will. But, oh, I love this. Hold on. But God understands. And he still pities us. And he still loves us. Hallelujah. God understands. He loves you in the midst of your blue funk of self-pity. He pities. He loves you. He understands. Ah. Now, here's a lesson. Here's what you can draw from this. Is there any cure? Yep, here it comes. And I, I put the numbers in myself. To wait patiently. Come on, Winston Churchill. Never, 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 never. That old bulldog of England. Never, never, never give up. That's the point. Wait. Wait on God. Wait patiently. Don't quit. Don't you quit. No, 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 no. To wait patiently. To trust. Write that in. To wait patiently. To trust. When everything looks dark is the lesson that we need to learn. Heaven will not fail us in our days of adversity. And I tell you what, this, this, this last line of this quotation is worth the whole study guide. This may be the only line that you remember. Then, you, then this would have been worth it all. Hang on to this line. Put this line on your mirror where you shave. Put this line on the kitchen where you cook. Put this line where you can see it beyond a day. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God, end quote. Let me quit preaching now and start talking. There's some of you here who are going through the dark night of your soul right now. I don't know what you're going through. Something with your health? Something with your marriage? Something with your studies? Something with your finances? Something with your career? I don't know what it is, but some of you today are going through the dark night of the cave where Elijah is right now. You're going through it. Now, my friend, please, don't give up. God has not forsaken you. He's as near as he's ever been in your life. He's never been closer than right now. Admit your nothingness. Isn't that what we just read? Admit your nothingness. And trust wholly. Hang on tight to the unseen one. And I tell you, I'll tell you, sister. I'll tell you, brother. If you cast your cares on him, he will care for you. Don't go on with this. Cut off the self-pity. God has healing and then recovery and the next step for your life. Don't quit. Don't quit. Read verse 9 again. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. This is on the, on the rocky slopes right up near the summit of Mount Sinai. On, t- on the side of Mount Sinai. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 11. Then God said, all right, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind like a hurricane tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, there is that. We've been looking for him. There it is. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. As I have been brooding over the devastating cataclysm that has struck Japan and the hemorrhaging that goes on and on and on, you know what, I'm going to be honest with you. I find a small measure of comfort in the words we just read. And the Lord was not in the earthquake. I want you to think about that. The governor of Tokyo, my birth city, all right? The governor of Tokyo. This is a news, this is a little, this is out in cyberspace. I'm reading this to you. The governor of Tokyo, Shintaro Ishihara. Apologize Tuesday. This is the Tuesday after the Friday quake and tsunami. Apologize Tuesday for saying that tsunami that recently struck Japan is divine punishment for the country's egoism. That would be pride. Shintaro told reporters during a press conference that he takes back the comments he made Monday and offered a deep, quote-unquote, a deep apology, according to Japan's Kyoto News Agency. He had originally said... The tsunami was needed to, quote, wipe out egoism, which has rusted onto the mentality of Japanese over a long period of time. He went on, I think the disaster, I think the disaster is tembatsu, which is a Japanese word for divine punishment. I think the disaster is tembatsu, although I feel sorry for the disaster victims, he said, end quote. I repeat, I find a small measure of comfort with the line we have just read, and the Lord was not in the earthquake. Too many of us are quick to conclude any cataclysm that comes to this planet, any disaster, oh, God's after him. The problem with that mentality is that when the crisis strikes my own life, I have to come to the same conclusion. God's after me. I must be being punished for something. What's wrong with me? The Lord was not in the earthquake. No, he wasn't. Now, look, I'm going to sidestep the question of whether or not God ever uses earthquakes as a divine judgment on any nation on earth. The apocalypse makes clear. By the way, don't miss next week because we're going to end up with that huge earthquake. The apocalypse makes clear that there will be a massive earthquake of judgment at the end of time, but that's another conversation at another time. Because what's just transpired with you and me reading together here, what's just transpired before the wide-eyed, open-mouthed, gaping prophet Elijah is a trifold cataclysm. First there's a hurricane. Then there's an earthquake. And then a fiery inferno. And the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And the Lord was not in the fire. So what was the Lord in? Read it again, verse 11. And God said, go out and stand. Stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a greater, great And strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. 
Those of you that have the NIV open on your lap right now, I like that. A gentle whisper. Those of you that have the New American Standard Version, the sound of gentle blowing. But I like best of all the New Revised Standard Version. The sound, a sound of sheer silence. As I was brooding over this, it suddenly occurred to me. See if I'm right. See, does, 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 it, does this resonate with you? God is not in the cataclysms that strike the earth. He is in the silence that follows the disaster. Could that be true? Huh? God doesn't come to the human race through earthquakes. He comes to us through the silence that follows, the numbing silence after the aftershock, when the mind at last is quieted and the heart at last is open in the, through the sound of sheer silence. God draws near. By the way, the same Hebrew phrase here for still small voice. I like this. It's found one other place in the Old Testament. Let me show it to you. This is Job chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 from the NIV. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. If you're all alone in a place and something brushes past you, I tell you what, ooh, your hair is on end. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard, here comes the same Hebrew phrase now, I heard a hushed voice. The hushed voice of a silent presence. Something glided past my face. My hair stood on end. Then I hear this hush. Elijah feels, as it were, the divine spirit. And then the hush. And so it was, verse 13, that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and stood on the side of that mountain in the entrance of that cave. You know what, ladies and gentlemen, our tendency, our human tendency is to look for God in the cataclysms and disasters that befall us. I mean, he surely is saying something to me. I'm just sure he is. But the adrenaline events of earth, you think about it, wars and earthquakes and tsunamis, or the private upheavals that we nurse that nobody else knows about, isn't it true that they are not always, they are not always the voice of God to you? The story of Elijah Reminds us that more significant than the upheavals that we experience is the quiet silence that follows the upheaval. Would you jot this down, please? It is the after silence. Go ahead and hyphenate the word. It is the after silence. After the aftershock. That is God's most potent moment to reveal His seismic love to us. It's the after silence of the after, after the aftershock. You know what, if, that's, if, if, if that sentence is true, if the story of Elijah is true, you know what that means? We ought to be, those of you that have the, a, a real burden for intercessory prayer, and there are a bunch of you, and I thank God for all of you. Those of you that have a burden for intercessory prayer, do you know what that means? That means we ought to be praying real hard now. We ought to be praying real hard for northern Japan, for Christchurch, for Chile, even a year later, for Haiti, because it's after the disaster, the after silence, after the aftershock. That's when God steps in and says, Hey, shh, I'm talking to you. That's why we ought to be praying now for those nations. 
After all, look how passionate God is for the lost. I mean, can you believe the way the story ends? Look at this. Verse 13. So it was that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly now, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Identical scene. Identical now is being repeated. And notice Elijah's answer has not changed a whit. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. One scholar writing about this says, yep, the words are the same, but something has, something has been transformed in the heart of that prophet. The, the whining whimper of self-pity is gone because everything he said is true. He now is simply stating facts. I'm it, and they're trying to kill me. Now notice, notice how God responds to this twice now repeated, I alone am left. Notice how God responds. Verse 18, you're alone? You're alone, Elijah? Verse 18, oh, yet I have reserved. I beg to differ with you. I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Isn't that amazing? What is the problem? I have 7,000 men, women, and children. I have 7,000 men, women, and children. I know that they look lost to you, but to me, they look found. I have 7,000 of them, Elijah. 7,000 of whom you know not a single one. Which is precisely, by the way, Paul's point. Paul comes along, he grabs, he grabs this story, and he sticks it into Romans. Did you know that this story is in Romans? Let me show this to you. Well, and you don't have to keep your finger here because we're not coming back. Romans. Romans chapter 11. Take a look at this. Isn't this something? Paul takes the story of Elijah, self-pity, that self-pity moment. Notice this. Romans chapter 11. Let's see, it's page 763 in the Pew Bible. This is something else. Now, Paul... Paul says, let me tell you what that story is about. Romans 11, verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Paul goes on, but what does the divine response say to him? God speaking, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now here comes the punchline. Paul gives it for us. Verse 5, even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Because of God's seismic grace and love. Paul says, listen, and jot this down, will you? Go ahead and jot it down in, in your study guide. Paul says, listen, look. In a world that looks dark and pagan and lost. Come on, fellow Christian, Paul's writing. Come on now. In a world that looks dark and pagan and lost, God is declaring he has a remnant. Write in that word. That's Paul's word. God is declaring he has a remnant. By the way, not just a visible remnant like Elijah. Because Elijah says, I'm the only one. Well, you're the only one that you can see right now. Not only a visible remnant like Elijah, but an invisible, write that word in, an invisible remnant like the 7,000. Wow. That's Paul's point. 
Listen to this stirring reminder. Same point being made in Prophets and Kings. Put the words on the screen for you. Among earth's inhabitants, scattered in every land, there are those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Like the stars of heaven, which appear only at night, these faithful ones will shine forth when darkness covers the earth one last time and gross darkness the people. Listen now, listen. In heathen Africa, in the Catholic lands of Europe and of South America, in China, in India, in the islands of the sea, and I slipped Japan in there because it's four islands. It's an island nation. In the islands of the sea and in all the dark corners of the earth, that would be the secular West, God has in reserve a firmament of chosen ones, right? that in. I have my chosen ones that will yet shine forth amidst the darkness. Isn't that amazing, ladies and gentlemen? To Elijah's plaintive, I alone am left, comes God's provocative, no you're not. I have 7,000 more that you know nothing of. In Islam, You see, that's why I have a burden that we don't turn on Muslims. That's why I have a burden that whenever we speak, it's always bridge building. I have 7,000 in Islam, 7,000 Muslims. I have 7,000 Buddhists. I have 7,000 Hindus. I have 7,000 Shintoists. That's the the pagan religion that the sophisticated Western-like mind of Japan still embraces. It's praying to your ancestral spirits. Shinto, only found on earth in Japan. I have 7,000 there. I have 7,000 atheists. I have many you do not know of, Elijah. You are not the only one left. I have 7,000 chosen ones who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, here's my question for you, Elijah, and you, Dwight, and you, Pioneer, and you, Anders University. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? The 7,000 are beyond these walls, not in here. I have 7,000 out there. What are you doing here? Well, i tell you what. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Maybe they're all around us. Maybe God's call to be a missionary is not only a foreign missionary. Maybe it's a call to be a home missionary. Maybe if the 7,000 are all through the grid of human society around us, maybe we're all missionaries wherever we go or don't go. Could that be it? I have 7,000, Dwight. You know when you're pumping your gas and then you're chatting with the guy across the uh, pump? That was one of my 7,000. You didn't know that, did you? When you're stuck in that long line at uh, Walmart, that that woman in front of you, you start chit-chatting about the weather. I didn't tell you, but that's one of my 7,000 right there. I'm bringing you as close as I can humanly bring you close to someone. What are you going to do for me? You're not the only one. Your church is not the only church. I have 7,000. I know I have entrusted the book to you, but that's so you'll find the 7,000 for me. 
glorying in your unique distinctiveness that makes you a small little community of faith on this planet. You are not alone. I have 7,000, 7,000 more. Maybe it's 700,000. I don't know what the number is. Maybe it's, maybe it's 7 million. Would it bother you if it were 700 million out of the 7 billion? I have more. So what shall we do? What are we supposed to do with these 7,000? Maybe we ought to take a cue from Calvary. You say, Dwight, we're not in Calvary. We're on Sinai right now. No, we're on Calvary. Do you know that through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the, the narrative in, in 1 Kings 19 and the narrative in Matthew 27 ha, is intertwined. Watch this. The two mountains, Elijah on Mount Sinai, Jesus on Mount Calvary, the two mountains are bound inextricably together. Elijah is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Sinai of Calvary. You think about it. On one mountain, we'll point at Sinai, on one mountain, God asked the hero, why are you here? On the other mountain, the hero asked God, why aren't you here? On one mountain, the hero cries out, I alone am left. On the other mountain, the hero sobs, I am left alone. On one mountain, he is calling Elijah. On the other mountain, they whisper, he is calling Elijah. On one mountain, an earthquake strikes to teach a truth. On the other mountain, an earthquake strikes to prove the truth. On one mountain, there is a still, small voice. On the other mountain, there is a shriek, shrill and agonizing. But on both mountains... What is inescapable is the simple truth of God's seismic love for our broken world. That's the truth of Elijah. That's the truth of Jesus. That's the truth of Calvary. What are you doing here? I didn't call you to comfort. I didn't call you to live among your friends and talk an inside dialect that nobody else can understand. I called you because I have 7,000 more than you. I have 7,000 more than you out there. So what are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Oh, like Elijah, we must bow down and worship God, and that's what we're doing today. Oh, God, we worship you, the wonder of your love. We worship you in the sheer silence of this wonder. But, ladies and gentlemen, the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is clear. After the worship, like Elijah, we too must go. There are 7,000 out there waiting for missionaries, home missionaries, foreign missionaries. It doesn't matter to me. Somebody's waiting for you. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? We must go. We must tell them of God's seismic love for them. We must go. What do you say?